Spectrum is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. The Scripps College offers the foundation for individuals seeking to blend creativity and practice so that graduates have the freedom to direct their skills and move the world forward. Its faculty takes a multidisciplinary approach to academic, professional, and social growth so that graduates have relentless optimism to navigate the changing environment. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with fascinating people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today we're talking with Dr. John Maxwell Hamilton, journalist, educator, and scholar. He's the author of a new book called Manipulating the Masses, Woodrow Wilson and the Birth of American Propaganda. He traces the history of the World War I Committee on Public Information and also talks about how that committee was the genesis of today's pervasive governmental propaganda. Hamilton also concentrates on how presidents have used and manipulated information to cement their power. Jack, your, your new book, Manipulating the Masses, Woodrow Wilson and the Origins of American Propaganda. I, I know you researched this book for eight years or, or more. Why did you choose this topic of all the topics out there to, to spend eight years of research on? Well, you know, uh, there are a lot of topics out there, and many of them interest me. Uh, the one that made this so compelling, or the reason this is so compelling, is that uh, nobody's ever done a complete history of the Committee on Public Information. The Committee on Public Information is our first and only ministry of propaganda. It started with the war under Woodrow Wilson, and it ended when the war was over. Uh, it lasted only about a year and a half, but its story is very complex, it's a, it's a story that hasn't been told because it requires an awful lot of research to find out what really went on. The government files don't tell the whole story. And so, uh, of course, I didn't realize it was going to take eight years. You never know when you get started how long it's going to take. But um, the goal was to try to write once and for all the definitive book on the subject. And you said you did research on documents, and it was beyond just government documents. Was this the kind of thing that you started digging into, and then it just exploded and expanded? Absolutely. And I took the approach of leave no stone unturned. So if I had an idea, I'd go find out uh, if there was something in that particular archive. I, I looked at 150 archives, archival collections in uh, both the United States and Europe. And, you know, once I sent a, my doctoral student to uh, the Hoover Institution to look at one collection, and it turned out there was one document in that collection that was extremely important. So it's just the same old story that you do in journalism and in, and in historical research. You just keep looking until you see, what every, see everything you can possibly see. Uh, and not always, but often you find really good information. When you, when you started this project eight years ago, uh, did you think that it would be as important a topic 
as it seems to be today? No. In fact, I, I would be um, remiss if I didn't point out that I didn't fully understand what the CPI was all about until I got into it. And it didn't become, and I, and it didn't become as uh, supercharged uh, as it did had it not been for Donald Trump. Donald Trump doesn't figure in the book in a major way by any means, but um, he's made this subject very relevant. It's also important to point out, however, that everything that's done today, and not only Donald Trump uses the propaganda power of the presidency uh, to try to shape public opinion, uh, but everything he does and everything modern presidents have done can find its antecedents in the Committee on Public Information. Yet it was only a year and a half. Are, were you surprised that it, something so short had such long living power? Uh, yes. Now, there were reasons for that. Uh, had there not been a war, there would still have been the an upsurge in government propaganda. War is obviously an accelerator of government propaganda for obvious reasons. Um, but there was a confluence of events that took place that made the CPI and government propaganda by other countries uh, so important at that point. And um, one of them was that governments had come to realize that public opinion was very, very important. Uh, this had been an, an accumulation of uh, respect for public opinion over a large number of years. But by the time you got to the end of the 19th century and early 20th century, people had become, political leaders had become very concerned about courting public opinion because the public had become highly literate. There were lots of publications. Journalists had become more independent. And of course, for every action, there's always a reaction. And the reaction was, how do we then uh, use these communication resources to our advantage and uh, to get our point across and to, to, uh, to make our case? Then, of course, there was the war, and the war required, for the first time in history, the total mobilization of whole societies. And this had never occurred before. And, and uh, as a result of that, there was, as I had said earlier, uh, an acceleration of interest in using all of these tools. Not just the United States did this, and, and it's important, very important to point this out. The United States liked to think it didn't do propaganda, but it did. In fact, every belligerent nation said it didn't do propaganda. That's an iron law. The iron law is that only the enemy does propaganda. Right. And uh, every government did it. The United States claimed it was different, but in fact, it did largely what every other country did it did. Some were more successful and adept at using propaganda. Uh, and that's part of the story. In, in fact, part of the story is the extent to which other countries' propaganda fit into our own propaganda, either because we tried to resist it or we worked with them. I want to go back and sort of take this chronologically and and bring it up to today, but I want to start with the the, the CPI and the the Committee for Public Information. And and you really do a great summary in your your first paragraph. Could you read that for us, and and then we can expand on that? Absolutely. Uh, and, and let me say, it took a long time for me to be able to write this paragraph. Uh, it took a long time for me to know exactly what I thought. Uh, that's the way it should be, of course. You know, you start out with an idea for your research, but 
then as you begin to do the research, you have to start thinking about what that uh, what what the documents really show you. And so here's the paragraph. This book is about the profound and enduring threat to American democracy that rose out of the Great War. The establishment of pervasive systematic propaganda as an instrument of the state. That horrific conflict required the mobilization of entire nations, no less in the United States than in Europe. The government in Washington exercised unprecedented power to shape the views and attitudes of the citizens it was supposed to serve. Its agent for this was the Committee on Public Information, the first and only time the United States government had a ministry of propaganda. Nothing like it had existed before, and it would be dismantled at the end of the war. But the CPI endured as a blueprint for the information state that exists today in peacetime as well as during war. Well, let's go back at the time, and and Woodrow Wilson was president. Uh, It was the time of the First World War. Uh, lots going on in the world. Uh, the Russian Revolution had had taken place. Uh, the United States was isolationist in, in, early on in in the World War One. Uh, a lot of things going on domestically as well. What prompted Woodrow Wilson to say, "You know, we need this." So there are um, there are several answers to that question, or multiple reasons why Wilson turned to this. Uh, one of them has to do with the fact that Wilson needed to pull the nation together. He had a particular uh, problem that the other belligerent nations didn't have, and that was that the United States wasn't directly threatened. Uh, there is um, uh, a poster, a wonderful poster, which is on the cover of the book. Uh, painted painted by a famous artist named Joseph Pinnell, who was British-born, by the way, that shows uh, the Germans bombing New York with the Statue of Liberty inflamed. And not all of the propaganda the CPI did was as in, literally as incendiary as that, but there was an effort to try to make the war seem urgent and real so that Americans would do the things that the government wanted them to do to buy liberty bonds, to allow themselves to be drafted, and little things as too as, as well. For example, campaigns for people to give binoculars to the Navy because the Navy didn't have enough binoculars, or to get workers not to move uh, because they wanted them to be in a certain place, or to get them to move so they would be in a place that their services could be used, to conserve food, to conserve coal and energy. Uh, their whole long list of things that the government wanted people to do. And one way to do that was to make the war seem urgent and to pull people together using patriotic themes. So that was one consideration that Wilson had. The other is uh, a progressive one. And this is something that, that is extremely important in understanding the Committee on Public Information. The Committee on Public Information was run by, populated almost exclusively by people who would be called progressives, people who believed in better government. And one of the themes in progressivism is the idea of information. Uh, Journalists like one of my heroes, uh, Ray Standard Baker, talked about the fact that he was going to go out and do publicity. Today, no journalist would say anything like that because they'd be afraid they sounded like a public relations uh, executive. But the idea of publicity then was to bring information forward that would enlighten the public, and lead them to the right conclusions. There was a view 
really kind of a naive view, it, not kind of, it was a naive view, that somehow if people just had the right information, they would come to the right conclusions. And so people like Wilson thought very much in terms of publicity. In fact, he always had this phrase he used over and over again called pitiless publicity that would enlighten people and enlighten them to the right policies, to get them to think right, which is almost a direct quote from what Wilson said. And so Wilson, early in his presidency, thought there ought to be a national newspaper run by the government. And by the way, the Committee on Public Information did create such a paper called the Official Bulletin. Uh, and uh, so the war gave him an opportunity to ca carry out a progressive agenda. Now, we'll see later in this conversation, I'm sure, how that progressive agenda ended up being at war with the very objectives uh, that it was supposed to uh, pursue, uh, because in the end, the Committee on Public Information produced an information trust. And we know one of the things progressives wanted to get rid of was trusts. But in this <laughs> case, it was a government trust, and it meant that the government decided what was right and what wasn't right. Uh, so there was that. There was also the fact that Wilson was a man who professed a deep belief in democracy, but also didn't like the retail aspects of democracy. And the Committee on Public Information was a shield for him. So he didn't really have to deal with individuals very much, except those he was comfortable with. He liked to give speeches and he was extremely adept at it. He didn't like to sit down in press conferences very much, although he did it early in his presidency. Uh, once the war came, he never did another press conference uh, during the entire duration of the war. The Committee on Public Information was, for him, a kind of shield. It could go and 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 promote the war and promote what he said without him having to get his hands dirty. And so uh, it fit both the progressive ideas that, that Wilson had and also his personal predilections. So those ideas came together. And the, the third strain, and one that I found doing this research that I never expected, was that the roots of the Committee on Public Information was the election of 1916, uh, when Wilson won uh, his second term. When the race started out, a great many people thought that Charles Evans Hughes uh, would win that race, a Republican, a very fine Republican, I might add. Uh, and, and it was really Hughes's race to lose. And I argue that one of the reasons the, the, uh, the Wilson won is because he had an extraordinary man in charge of the D Democratic National Committee Publicity Bureau. And that man was a guy named Robert Woolley. And his deputy was George Creel, who went on to be the head of the Committee on Public Information. And, let me, let yeah. me jump in there uh, yeah, about George Creel. Uh, you know, history, if you look back, is, is marked by strong personalities that change things. Uh, George Creel, uh, from my understanding, was one of those strong personalities. Talk about his relationship with Wilson and how that worked. Well, okay, I will. Let me do the segue into that to say that the reason the committee was actually founded, created, was even though it was needed and had to, something had to be created, as it was in every country, it was created actually before we even had conscription law. It was created one week after we went to war without much forethought. And George Creel fought very hard to get that job. And he had had a relationship with Wilson because his work on the, of his work on the committee and because as a journalist, he had often written very favorably about Wilson. And so he had something of a relationship already with the president. And he was a natural choice for the job 
because he also had a very close relationship with Josephus Daniels, who was a journalist and also the Secretary of Navy. And the Navy had a deep interest in uh, creating this committee because the Navy was in charge of wireless. The wireless was a Navy piece of technology in those days. And Creel was, a, and they were concerned about how they were going to control the wires. And so Daniels wanted Creel for the job. Uh, so Wilson and Creel got along very well. Uh, Creel was very amusing, uh, great raconteur, very loyal, and very, very outspoken. In fact, too outspoken. And he got in trouble many times for being as outspoken as he was. And he would say things in a very witty way about Wilson's enemies, and Wilson loved that. So that even if Wilson might not have said those things, he had Creel to entertain him at the end of the day. Uh, Creel often came over to talk to him at the end of the day. And uh, so there was a very strong relationship between the two men, uh, almost as strong as, as a relationship could be with Wilson. Wilson, uh, as many people have pointed out, uh, had a certain impersonal side to him and could be close to somebody for a while and then not so close later on. Uh, but in any of uh, Colonel House being a good example of that, his, his uh, eminence, Greece, who was obviously during most of the war, very close to him and influential. So they had a very strong relationship. And uh, as a result of that, that gave Creel enormous power. Today, you know, we use the word um, spin. Uh, in those days, the word was Creeling. And at a, grid, <laughs> at a gridiron dinner in uh, 1917, it's a dinner the journalists put on to roast politicians. There was a little skit in which they said there were four branches of government, uh, as the skit put it. And one of those branches of government was the Committee on Public Information. That's how influential it was seen at the time. Let's look at the committee uh, now that we understand how, how it was set up. Uh, as far as its reach, and what I mean by that is, is did it have defined terms that Wilson or others expected it to do? Did it have a broad range of, of duties, or did it just sort of explode? Well, that's a good question, and the answer is it exploded. There was a very short order that created the CPI. The idea in the beginning was it was going to mostly take care of censorship issues, but there was no censorship law at that point. That hadn't been passed yet. Wilson, and particularly Creel, saw the need for positive propaganda, that is, provision of information. Uh, you know, there's two sides to propaganda. One is the suppression of information, and the other is the provision of it. Both are designed to shape what people think. Uh, and... Uh, as it turned out, Creel never had formal censorship authority, although he had lots of informal authority. Um, but he did have tremendous, uh, took advantage of the open-ended nature of the creation of the CPI to um, expand it dramatically into areas that Wilson never dreamed the CPI would go, including working overseas. It was meant initially to be a domestic agency, not a international one but it ended up being international as well at the end. Well, you mentioned in your book that it expanded so much that it extended into Boy Scouts and traveling salesmen and universities. Talk about that. So the CPI did the, the obvious things. 
uh, it put out press releases. It made press releases actually a Quivithian part of uh, Washington life. There had been handouts before under Roosevelt, but by the time the CPI got done, there were there were hundreds and well, there were there were thousands and thousands of press releases put out. It published a daily newspaper, like I said, uh, and then it just found all kinds of ways to enlist other institutions. So it brought in university professors who were uh, who were used to promote to pro- to write. Uh, books and pamphlets uh, that could be distributed nationally. Uh, And of course, those books and pamphlets had the imprimatur of scholarship, which therefore gave them credibility. Uh, The CPI worked with the motion picture industry to do films. It worked with advertising executives to create ads that were splashed all over the United States. Uh, It worked with corporate executives it, and then it used, wherever it could, other institutions. So, for example, when it wanted to distribute some materials, it used the Boy Scouts. It used traveling salesmen. It worked with a, something called the Council of National Defense, which was a quasi-government body that helped uh, promote the war, usually focused its efforts on how to manage industry well and national resources. But uh, the CPI had branches all over the country and uh, in every state and in most big communities. And so that they were able to figure back on that infrastructure. Uh, to give you one example of how both entrepreneurial the CPI was and how great its reach was, we should think about uh, something called the Four Minute Men. So when Creel first got started in his first couple of days, he was in the uh, the old li- the Navy Library in what was then the State Navy uh, Army Building which is now the old executive office building, a wonderful little, beautiful little space. And a guy came in from Chicago uh, who was a group of, representing a group of very prominent young men in Chicago who had started doing uh, speeches promoting the war. This is before war was declared in theaters during the uh, brief period that films were changed. And when the war was declared, they decided to send this guy to come, his name is Ryerson. They sent him to come to um, to come to Washington to suggest to Creel that they could help promote the war. And Creel liked the idea and instantly did it. Uh, another one of those young men, a guy named uh, McCormick, uh, uh, William McCormick Blair, uh, became the director of it. He was an ex- exceptionally good manager. And the idea of the so-called Four Minute Men was that they would sit up, stand up during intermission, and they would speak on some war topic. The topic might be the ones that I mentioned to you already. Donate binoculars to the Navy. Buy Liberty Bonds. Uh, don't listen to talk that is that runs against administrative uh, government policy because that's enemy talk. Look for spies everywhere. By the way, let me just point out, there was not one spy there was one spy <laughs> prosecutor during the entire war. There may have been more, but there weren't many. Uh, and so this, uh, they, had, they had topics that were sent from Washington, but they appeared to be local. And in fact, that's one, of the, uh, that's one aspect of this that made them so effective. So here were local people, uh, you know, lawyers and journalists and bankers and uh, insurance salesmen and judges, people who were very respected in the community, who looked like they were coming with a local message, but it was all heavily scripted from Washington. And at the end of the war, 
there were 75,000 of these people. 75,000. 75,000. Wow. And, and <laughs> wow. some, some of them gave four talks. Some of them gave 40. Some gave more. Uh, at the end, they didn't just do it in movie, in movie theaters. They went to logging camps and churches and Boy Scout jamborees and all kinds of places. But, but the main place was in the movies because you had this wonderful opportunity during the four minutes. And uh, the goal was to use that four minutes very effectively. And that's very much today, you know, Tom, like social media is, you know, you pick right. up your phone and you're looking for something and all of a sudden a message that you didn't ask for when you were just kind of grazing around looking for a note from your girlfriend or um, trying to find out when a sports game was going to be on tonight. There you are all of a sudden getting a message from a third party telling you what to think. The reach of this um, is interesting. And not only the, the four men and how it expanded, but talk about, you know, this time uh, period, how it went from just being domestic to being international, some of the good things it did, but also it got into some really shady aspects uh, racism, uh, you know, fairly undemocratic uh, methods, um, even though it was started by progressives. Talk about that. So um, the way I've written this history is as a warning to the dangers uh, that are inherent in government propaganda. The idea that when you think you're um, invested in and pursuing a noble cause, you begin to think of the ends as being more important than the means. Every one of those people who worked in the CPI that I can discern was a good person with, with good motives. And they did many good things, but they also allowed their passions to run away with them. And they did many things that were not good and were undemocratic. And we can talk a little bit a little later on on what I think the long-term consequences of that are. But that's a point of view that the book seeks to uh, make as strongly as possible. That doesn't mean I don't point out the good things, and I'll give you a list of a few of them. The official bulletin uh, was somewhat propagandistic, but its virtues lay in the fact that it was very transparent about government, what contracts had been let, uh, what the president had said in a speech, uh, what, pe what, what people had uh, casualty lists. Um, there, there was a lot of very good government information. And today that lives on in a publication and others like it, but particularly in a publication called the Federal Register, which um, is a good example of what the government can do to keep us informed. And so, you know, I, I think of the official bulletin as being a, one of the best things the CPI did. It had a service bureau and a service bulletin that told people what was happening in government and how you could go find officials who were in an area that you wanted to know something about. Um, they, they did a good job of providing a lot of press release information that was, was useful. Uh, this, was, this had sort of two sides to it. Uh, the reason it was useful was the press was so um, uh, spread so thin because the government was doing so many things in the war that it was hard to keep up with it all. And so they had to become somewhat tethered to the CPI's news office 
uh, news bureau because they needed to get access to this information. So, of course, we know that can be a problem. The journalists become uh, kind of prisoners of the handout rather than having time to explore news on their own. Um, the CPI created uh, an international news service, which is today can be seen in something like the uh, VOA, the Voice of America, and other radio broadcasts we do overseas, uh, which can be very wholesome propaganda. Um, it was the first time the United States had ever been able to really project its message overseas in some kind of systematic way. Uh, Creel himself worked hard to uh, get journalists accredited to go cover the war, which was not easy because the army wasn't too keen on having that happen. Uh, there were times when he went to Wilson to try to get him to do things that were uh, positive, but Wilson objected. <laughs> Actually, in the area of race, uh, Creel managed to get the only black journalist accredited to cover the AEF. He tried to get Wilson to talk to a group of black editors and publishers. Uh, Wilson wouldn't do it uh, because he said he, he's, uh, I think the reason he gave was because uh, they wouldn't pay attention to me anyway. And in many cases, he could be very generous. Problem was, Creel was a very bad choice for this job. And one reason for that was he, he very much overreacted to criticism of Wilson and the administration. And there were times when he just should have kept his mouth shut. And so we can come back to that point. But uh, the point I would just leave it there for the moment is that he brought a lot of trouble on the government because of his unrestrained, the unrestrained way he operated and the way he used the tools uh, that he had for censorship in, in ways that were rather petty, that were petty. Uh, and finally, I guess on the list, and there, there's more on the list, the CPI created, uh, pioneered the idea of public diplomacy, the idea that Diplomats shouldn't just be people who wear stripes, striped pants, sit in nations, other nations' capitals and talk to other people like themselves in the foreign ministry, but that we ought to have programs that go and reach people in those countries. And the CPI gets credit for that. And it wasn't well managed, but uh, they had no template for doing it. And there was some extremely, extremely valuable work that was done. And, and one of the heroes in this book, uh, I would, I would mention, is a woman named Vera Whitehouse, who uh, is, worth, is, is, is worth a book unto herself. Vera Whitehouse was a wealthy uh, woman, extremely beautiful, in fact, often described as the most beautiful woman in New York. Um, and she had led the suffrage movement in New York and actually secured the vote for women in the 1917 election. Uh, and everyone thought, by the way, that New York would be the one place uh, where there was a vote that year on the subject that would not succeed. And she succeeded by a large margin. And Wilson sent her to uh, Switzerland to do public information. She, she, the, the embassy there, as with embassies in many places, didn't want anything to do with public information, with public diplomacy. Uh, and they definitely didn't want anything to do with a woman. I think you could argue that uh, Vera Whitehouse qualified as the first woman foreign service officer, although she wasn't technically a foreign service officer. They put all kinds of obstacles up in her way. She refused to be uh, to be stopped. At one point, she got so angry, she came back on her own money to Washington, D.C. to see Wilson and make him give her letters telling the embassy to do what she wanted to do. Uh, it's a great <laughs> success story. And so there were people like that in the CPI who you really have to admire. There are others too, uh, who did really wonderful things. But there's the other side that you mentioned, Tom. 
And that's the things they did that were inherently undemocratic and counterproductive. And I can go through that list if you want. Well, one of them that stands out to me is that they were punitive in that they put people in jail under the then important Espionage and Sedition Acts, uh, which uh, were used often during World War I to stem both communist propaganda and anti-war sentiments. Uh, Here you have this public information group uh, really uh, sending people to jail. So the CPI didn't send them to jail. The Justice Department did. And well, C- yes. but in conjunction, the CPI would um, the CPI would help identify people sometimes. Uh, Creel later on, as he did with many things, said that the CPI never did any of these things. But if you look at the if you look at the files, you can see that the CPI was identifying people who could be a problem and using the threat of going to jail or even the threat of having your newsprint uh, suspended because the government was rationing newsprint. Uh, so he had, Creel had lots of levers that he could use to um, try to suppress information. And Wilson himself, to his great discredit, allowed the Justice Department to and, and the military, because military intelligence was very much involved with this, to... Um, to send people to jail, and and it and there's there's no other way to say it than it was very undemocratic and wrong. And if we saw some of these things done by a, another country today, we would condemn them. And one of the most flagrant is that uh, Eugene Debs, who was a socialist and won more votes when he ran for for president in 1912, and he ran again in 1916 than any socialist would ever win, ever. Um, he he said that he was he he had he called out uh, the government on conscription the draft, and he went to jail, and he was a political prisoner. There's no question about it. He was a political prisoner, and to Wilson's um, shame, I think, when the war was over, he could have pardoned Debs, and he didn't do it. it was left to Harding. He, he, in this respect, Wilson's a very flawed individual, uh, and um, suppression of speech is is a, um, you know, that's a very un-American thing to do. Where the CPI really comes into the suppression of speech isn't, as I, I've intimated, I think, in the, its more subtle aspects. So, for example, today we use the word fake news. Uh, uh, President Trump uses it all the time. Uh, he claims, by the way, he, he invented that term. But in the course of this research, I found a book published in 1912 called Fake News. So... <laughs> I'm afraid he's wrong. But in the case of the CPI, the way they would uh, fence back information they didn't like is to call it enemy talk. So that if you said anything that contradicted what Wilson's point of view was, it was enemy talk. They ran a column that was uh, uh, was written by a guy named Harvey O'Higgins, who was a a famous writer in those days and a progressive, called uh, Facts and uh, uh, Spies and Lies, which which would list all kinds of things that people were saying that weren't true. He also ran another column called Official Facts. The point being, pay attention to what the government says because that's where you get good information and any other information is is not good. We'll be back after this message. Spectrum's brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. 
The Scripps College is one of the most comprehensive colleges of communication in the country. It offers a foundation of creativity and practice so that graduates can move the world forward. In particular, the Scripps College offers challenging coursework that holds students to high expectations an integrated curriculum that combines a variety of disciplines and ideas, and student-driven media organizations where students can apply these skills and gain experience that enables them to hit the ground running upon graduation. That's the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. This tension between uh, the press and the CPI, um, were members of the press intimidated, as you said, by newsprint, by other uh, uh, threats to them? Uh, How did they respond to the CPI? So that's a really great question asked by a person who knows a lot about journalism, uh, to wit you. Uh, So... This is actually a a part of the book that I was very surprised to um, write about the way I did. The press did not like Creel and um, and they, because they didn't like the way he operated. Not all, actually people who knew him well liked him. He was a very likable guy, but they objected to his heavy handedness and his hyperbolic way of doing things. Uh, And they sometimes objected to handouts, but, but in fact there were so there was an avalanche of handouts and all of them didn't come from the CPI. The CPIs were better than many of the others that were put out by other branches of the government sometimes. And much of it was controlled by the CPI, but there were some agencies that could do their own. So they were, they had this love hate relationship with it. But what, what I think needs to be pointed out is that the, the press was to my way of thinking, mind bogglingly supportive of the government. They may not have liked they may not have liked Creel all the time, but they they were they were very very supportive of the government, and I, I can't even I can't even begin to overstate this. So let, let me give you a couple of examples. Sure. As soon as the war took place, the head of the AP, which of course is supposed to be a bastion of great journalism, gave a speech at the annual meeting, and uh, it was a. It was a meeting given in a hall where there were British and French banners, and uh, and and Noy said, "We now can have our own declaration of war." And he said, "Strict neutrality on all controversial points due to the varied and manifold opinions of of its membership uh, now could be put aside today. Thank God, this is not only necessary, but co- but the contrary is true. No trace for no trace of neutrality is coursing in our veins." Uh, we all know about wow. the Pulitzer Prizes. Uh, the, when I found this out, I was astonished. The first year the Pulitzer, the second year Pulitzer Prizes were given was 1918, and they had a category that year that they only gave in that year. It's never been given since, and it was to be awarded for a publication that wrote about journalism. It so happened this publication was written by two students at Columbia University in the journalism school, which, by the way, gives out the Pulitzers. Right. And the school, this slim publication was dedicated to one thing, praising the press for publicizing government propaganda. I'm sorry, praising the press for publicizing government war programs. And this is a quote, and for its suppression of ill-timed sentiments. 
Whoa. A Pulitzer Prize was given for an extended essay on that subject. So this was, in fact, astounding. In fact, well, you're at a journalism school, a very fine journalism school. Columbia University in 1917 suspended classes for all students who wanted to stop going, suspended requirement to go to classes, and said all those students could turn out government propaganda and get their degree. Wow. (laughs) Wow. So, so the press was very, very supportive. And, um, and something happens at the end of the war that uh, a, a very important moment, and if, if I may, let me just jump ahead to talk sure. about this. So we often think of the Vietnam War in the 1960s as a moment where government cynicism sets in, uh, or press cynicism sets in about the government. But I think the, the moment that occurs initially is at the end of World War I where the government realized how it had been used, the press realized how it had been used by the government and became very suspicious of being used again and much more cynical about what the government was doing. I think that's where you date the beginning of this feeling. And this is the big problem with government propaganda. You may win some short-term victories in terms of what you get the public to think, but in the long-term, it's very corrosive because it leads the people to begin to suspect their government. And you know, today, just to be present-minded about this, uh, Donald Trump didn't start making us suspicious of government. But we're in, a, in an era today where um, our own president is calling out the institutions that we should care the most about, the Justice Department, judges, um, um, the press, which is described as an enemy of the people. Um, and so these, these statements, that, that uh, these propagandistic statements, really work against the credibility of the government. And it's a paradox, because if you really want to get something done as a president, you need those institutions to be credible and functioning. Uh, and so he's an extreme case. He's pushed us a lot farther than we've ever been pushed before but he's a vivid reminder of the dangers of breeding cynicism in the public. And the CPI, you can see the CPI as, as a, as maybe ground zero for that, the beginning of it. I I want to jump back before we come forward and, and look at the, the CPI was a year and a half ended, uh, Later on, we had the advent of commercial radio. We had uh, the Great Depression. We had uh, the chaos in in Europe leading to World War II, uh, United States neutral until 1941. What lessons from the CPI and Wilson did did Franklin Roosevelt take from that era – and implement with his own stamp of approval or his own personality, I should say. Well, of course, uh, Roosevelt had been the assistant secretary of the Navy uh, in, during the war under Josephus Daniels. And in those days there was only one assistant secretary. Um, And so he saw the CPI at work and Creel in 1940 or yeah, in 1940, when the war started in 1941, Creel really pushed to have a new CPI created. And 
and uh, Roosevelt didn't do it. He didn't do it in part because he realized that there was a problem with the centralized propaganda ministry. Uh, and he didn't do it in part because the legacy of the CPI was such that if he had done it, he would have gotten a lot of pushback um, because everybody remembered Creel. And so he never tried to do that. He never, he never tried to recreate that organization exactly. He also um, did something else that is important. Uh, there, was, there was plenty of hate-filled propaganda in World War II, but it never, ever reached the level of what it had been in World War I. Uh, the CPI, you know, had some terrible, terrible um, propaganda that that was so so racist in the sense of being anti-German in a way that was utterly unfair, and actually worked against getting a good peace because people came to hate the Germans, and and Wilson didn't go that far with the Japanese or with uh, with the Germans, and so that was good. Uh, and he put better people in the jobs, you know, the, the, he divided up the, the various tasks into several different offices and the people he put in charge of those offices were, were more adroit at doing their job and more sensitive to what it was, to what it entailed. Well, let me move one step forward in history and, and talk about the Cold War and uh, what lessons did U.S. presidents during the height of the Cold War take from the CPI? Well, you know, uh, in the in the old USIA, U.S. Information Agency in Washington, uh, in the old where it used to exist many years ago, uh, outside of the director's office, there were there were a series of portraits of people who had been his predecessor, or his there wasn't a her his predecessor, and um, Creels was first, but that's somewhat misleading because after the war was over public diplomacy waned a bit. Uh, there was more attention to reaching publics, but there wasn't, there wasn't anything like public diplomacy. In fact, the term doesn't even come to exist until 1960s or 70s. Um, more was being done, but some of those lessons had been lost. And so you didn't really have people sitting around in the Cold War thinking exactly uh, like, what do we do now that the CPI did? Some of it was forgotten. Uh, and some of it had just been ingrained in the regular way they operated. Creel's examples, the example of Creel as a leader lived on. People remained uh, very clear about what, what that was about. Uh, one of the things to see, but, but that doesn't mean they didn't use CPI techniques. And I'll give you one uh, that's a good example. So the CPI claimed that it never subsidized, never did anything secretly, was always above board, never lied, never said anything that was, wasn't completely true. And uh, and uh, was utterly transparent. Well, in fact, this isn't true. They in the United States they had front organizations that dealt with immigrants and labor, and overseas they subsidized publications. Vera Whitehouse even was willing to entertain doing that in Berlin in Bern. But what's interesting is that one of the people she worked with was none other than Alan Dulles, who went on to be the head of the oh, CIA. Yeah. And Alan, she and Alan Dulles quarreled quite a bit initially. He was a young foreign service officer at the time, and one of his jobs was to handle spy networks that were in Berlin, of which Berlin was riddled with spies in those days uh, because of its location physically and the fact it was a neutral country. And uh, it was really a place where a lot of spies spied on each other. Uh, and um, 
Alan Dulles's first idea was that Vera Whitehouse shouldn't even be attached to the embassy at all, but should pose as a journalist and pretend she was a, a journalist so that then she could secretly put out government information. So here's a story that's very, very interesting to me. First of all, she refused to do that. Uh, and, and so, of course, when Alan Dulles became head of the CIA, he used those techniques all the time. In fact, that was one of the things when they did the investigation of the CIA with the church committee many years later that came out, the number of journalists who had been used in some way or other by the CIA. But here's another wrinkle to the story that I love. So there was a guy, a very famous journalist, young journalist, uh, ambitious journalist named Carl Ackerman, who was a friend of Dulles's and was stationed in Switzerland and very much in touch with Edward House, who, as I said, was, was Wilson's very close confidant. And he was providing all kinds of information to the government on how to do propaganda. And he actually wanted Vera Whitehouse's job. And, um, <laughs> and it gets better. And um, tried very hard to get her fired so he could get her job. And he said what should happen is he would keep his ties as the New York Times correspondent. He'd keep his ties with the Times and do his work secretly. And here's the kicker to that story. He went on to be the dean of the Columbia Journalism School. <laughs> Once again, we circle back. Some, some amazing stories in historical perspective. But, but let me jump forward a little bit. Uh, towards the end of your book, you have a paragraph, and I just want to read part of it because uh, I think it's a good transition. The control of propaganda is one of the thorniest problems of democracy. Like the plant deadly nightshade, which can promote sanity or bewitch, depending on how the po potion is administered. Government information can sustain democracy or undermine it. And your paragraph goes on. But that's the transition I want to make as to your conclusions after all of your research and after all of your view of history. You know, it looks like we have a two-edged sword here. Uh, that's true. Uh, you know, one agency that helped me a lot with this book uh, was the Government uh, Accountability Office, uh, which um, the GAO, which I, which was very kind to give me a lot of time and explain what laws existed and the work that was done. And one of the things they pointed out to me, of course, I was interested in the provision of propaganda, but they pointed out that they were concerned about that, but they were also equally concerned with the fact that the government needed to provide information, that it needed to be transparent. And that when they were doing investigations, they'd be looking at that issue just as much as at the other one. And that's the origin of the point of the deadly nightshade. Uh, and it also points out the difficulty of drawing the line between the two. Because government is, democratic government, is absolutely dependent on information. You can't have democracy without the government telling you things. A lot of the things they tell you, like... Uh, what the weather forecast is going to be, or what are trade statistics, or what are nutritional facts we need to know, uh, or how is COVID uh, best treated, what are the numbers of infection, things like that. Those numbers are essential in a democracy. 
and, and also governments need to tell you what contracts they let, what their policies are. But there's also this tremendous possibility of then using all the tools you have as president to propagandize people, effectively propagandize citizens with their own taxpayers' dollars. And um, we've had a great deal of difficulty drawing a line between this. Um, let's give you one example of the, of the kind of uh, problem we have. Uh, the, the, um, you're, al- you're allowed to, uh, we, we, well, I may put it this way. We do not have a good definition drawing a line between publicity and propaganda in the law at all. In fact, our laws are very inadequate. Uh, we say that you cannot uh, um, provide partisan information, but if an, but if a, if something you're putting out has lots of good publicly useful information and a little bit of partisan information, it's considered okay, because how do you draw the line? In fact, nobody has ever been charged with or accused of, you know, it has to be referred to the Justice Department. No one's ever been. Uh, investigated by the Justice Department for violating one of those laws ever. Never has happened. Part of the problem for this is that, um, like I say, it's hard to draw a line. Part of the problem is the Justice Department reports to the president, which means effectively who's guarding the guardian. Uh, And part of the problem is a lot of it can seem kind of trivial. Uh, And so you let it go, but it has an accumulative effect. So take this as an example. Uh, just in the last couple of days, President Trump has decided to launch a $300 million ad campaign to um, get the country to feel good about itself in light of the coronavirus because he thinks people need to be more positive. This is being done by the Department of Health and Human Services and includes videos from administrative officials and celebrity, including people like Dennis Quaid and singers like CeCe Winans. Uh, the government's very, un- the co- Democrats in Congress are very unhappy about this. But the interesting thing is that when this is done by President Obama, and he did things like this, not quite like that, but where he used government facilities to promote policies, government communications to promote policies, uh, the Democrats never ca- called him out for that. So the distinction here is between informing the public. For example, let's say in the Obama administration, you want to have, you think that the minimum wage should be raised and you think that's a good thing. And I can see how many people would think that was a good thing. It's one thing to tell the public what your what policy you recommend. It's a different thing from the Labor Department to send out videos and all kinds of information to persuade you to think it's a good policy. It's one thing for the president to argue for it being a good policy, but should taxpayer dollars be used to get you to think that the government, the people who were elected, have a better policy than people in Congress who think maybe the minimum wage shouldn't be raised? Let me say, the question here isn't my view on the minimum wage or a member of the audience's view on minimum wage. The question is, how should your tax dollars be used? And so uh, this is a problem that we haven't learned how to cope with. And, and we don't even know, Tom, how much government information is put out anymore. We don't, we've never even done an audit. No, it's blurred, too. And it's, it's blurred. so blurred. Yeah. And so, of course. And, and so, and we have people who, you know, there was a law in uh, public, uh, passed in, uh, during the Wilson administration that said you couldn't have publicity experts. 
because Congress saw what was coming and they didn't like it. And they didn't want the executive branch to use its communication power to get the public to lobby elected members of Congress to pass certain laws. Members of Congress saw their job as to collectively decide what the law should be and the president's job to implement it. Well, okay, so you can't, that's still in the law, by the way, it's still passed. You can't use the word publicity expert. But here's the problem. What if you're called something else? What if you're called a public health communications uh, expert? Uh, in the in the Truman administration, they were trying to get rid of some of the public affairs officers in the Air Force, and so they just gave them a different job. They made them chaplains. So that's 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 true, by the way. Wow. And so and so trying to get control of this is very very difficult. The amounts of money spent are millions and millions of dollars. But just take something simple, like what the president has at his beck and call. When the president wants to deliver a message, um, he or she can sit in the Lincoln Memorial, have a flyover by the Blue Angels, uh, or have a band show up. What do military bands do? You know, a lot of what military bands do is propaganda. You know how much we spend on military bands? Half a billion dollars a year. Wow. Not, none of that appears, uh, appears, I'm not against military bans necessarily, no. but, but what I'm saying is the, the capacity the president has to propagandize is enormous and there are no really good rules about it. And so now what we see with somebody like uh, President Trump, who's pushing the boundaries, and again, I think President Trump is very extreme, but I want to mention that I'm not writing this because I'm partisan Democrat or partisan Republican. Republican. The fact is other presidents do it too. But the president did something that never had been done before, which was to use the White House as a backdrop for the Republican National Convention. And actually, that may also violate some other laws like the Hatch Act, because people who help set that up are not allowed, regular government employees are not allowed to do political things. But that's our problem. And what needs to happen today, it's not an easy problem to solve, is the first step has got to be, we need to do an audit of what the government's communications programs are. We need to look at our laws, come up with good definitions of what constitutes propaganda and what doesn't. We need to have some best practices established about what's acceptable and what's not. And then we need to have constant surveillance. We do this with other branches of government where we have quasi-government you know, government bodies uh, who do annual reports or biannual, uh, biannual reports on, on some aspect of government. For example, classification of documents and whether it's excessive or not. But we need, to, we need to begin to put together a process that gets control of our government because some presidents will, will be more judicious about how they use these powers. But as we learn from Wilson, they can go awfully far. And when they have a righteous cause, they can decide to look beyond democratic principles. Let me flip this a, a little bit and, and talk about... Uh, the average citizen's role in in all of this. Uh, we've had from Wilson to Trump, we've had from some lies to sometimes a propensity of, of lying. Uh, we have the controls that you propose would be essential to curb some of this. Those probably aren't going to happen in, in the near future. What happens to the average consumer of this information? How do they fare it out? 
what's real and what's well, not. You know, um, we have a movement going on now called uh, media literacy. And the idea is to teach people to be media literate. You could almost change that and call it you need to be politically literate. In other words, how do you learn what's really happening in your government? And the supposition is you have to be more, you have to work at it and you have to be more discriminating. You can't just accept what somebody tells you. Um, and I think that's a place to start, but it's a lot of work because every time you read a story, you can't go do your own investigation to find out if it's right or not. And so, um, and, and, and the process has been made more difficult because of this mantra that's being said over and over again about uh, the press being an enemy. It's not only uh, President Trump that says it and people in the administration. Fox News says it all the time. It's really kind of incredible that they talk about the, the press being the enemy when they're the press. And the Wall Street Journal editorial page, which is a very fine editorial page in many ways because they can be very interesting. They always are talking about the liberal media. The liberal media is, has an agenda. And I understand that there's a the media can sometimes be liberal, but we have to be very careful about constantly referring back to the press as being uh, always having a hidden agenda and never having uh, the public's interest in mind. This is very self-defeating. Uh, and and not very introspective, and I I think we need to we need to move toward uh, a world. This is I know this is not easy to say. We need to move toward a world where we don't always want to find confirmation bias uh, or use confirmation bias to dislike what people say if we don't think we agree with them to start with. We need to learn to find out what other people say and why they say it and what might be right about it. I mean, I'm not supportive of Donald Trump, as I guess is apparent in this conversation, but not everything he does is wrong. Not every time he says something is it wrong. Uh, he oftentimes makes good points, and we need to learn how to think about that. And we, and we, need, to, we need to be much more respectful. And, and what's happened is, with, and I trace this to the CPI, this danger of trying to fence back information, to call information that you don't like fake news or enemy talk, has had real consequences, and today we're living with it. And there aren't easy fixes, but part of it has to lie, not just with us being trained to be good consumers of news, but us being alert to the fact that we can, that we always have the danger of trying to hear what we want to hear. The book is Manipulating the Masses, Woodrow Wilson and the Origins of American Propaganda. The author, John Maxwell, Hamilton. Uh, Jack, it's, it's been a delight talking with you. you know, th th my view of this is this is not just a history book. People shouldn't look at this as a history book. This is background information building to problems that we see today. It may have started as a history book, but it certainly has ended up being sort of a treatise on public information, its uses and abuses. I thank you very much uh, for having me, Tom. And I appreciate your saying that because in the end, of course, like any author, I want to promote the book. But I'm very, very concerned that we try to address some of these problems. And I hope the book, I, I mean this very genuinely, I hope this book helps promote a debate on the problem. Today, we've been talking with author, scholar, and journalist, Dr. John Maxwell Hamilton about his new book, 
manipulating the masses and the genesis of government propaganda. Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hodson. Please subscribe to Spectrum. You can do that at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or at NPR One. Spectrum also is available at the NPR Podcast Directory. We always welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or review it to one of your favorite podcast outlets. If you have any comments or questions about our podcast or have suggested topics for us to cover in the future, please direct them to me by email at hodson at ohio.edu. That's hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu.